Amen. Amen. Good worship again tonight. Thank you. Yeah. Great job. 1 Corinthians 14. Big chapter. Lots to get through tonight. We're going to attempt to actually read through the entire chapter. Hit some highlights tonight. It's a very important chapter. In this chapter, 1 Corinthians 14, Paul lays down for the Corinthians and for every local church since the Corinthian church... Ten principles that should guide our gathering together. Every time you and I get together, whether it's Tuesday night, Sunday, even other groups, whether it's a men's Bible study, a women's Bible study, a young adult meeting, a small group meeting, whenever people from the Oasis get together, these should be ten guiding principles that guide our corporate get-togethers, if you will. Now, certainly he's talking here about the church itself, the services of the church, but these principles go far beyond that. So with that said, a lot to get to tonight. Let me also preface it by saying this. One of the reasons why Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 14 is because the Corinthian church overemphasized certain gifts, spiritual gifts that we've been talking about, and misused certain spiritual gifts. And so even in that context, Paul's going to try to lay out these principles to correct and bring some kind of correction to even the misuse and overemphasis of certain gifts in the church at Corinth. First principle that should guide our coming together, pursue love. The first two words of 1 Corinthians 14. We talked last week about love. 1 Corinthians 13 is the love chapter. So we went over last week the priority of love, the portrait of love, the permanence of love. So you can go back to 1 Corinthians 13. That's why he starts out 1 Corinthians 14 with just pursue what I just talked about. And I love the word pursue. It it means to run after and go towards sort of the goal line or the finish line, but never actually reaching it, but always striving to get there. In other words, Paul's trying to give the Christians in Corinth the mindset that we should always keep loving each other and keep striving to love each other more and never feeling like we get to the point as Christians where we've loved enough or where we've come to the limit of our love. It should always appear to us as again, a, a line that is a little bit further out there that we've got to, keep, got to keep going towards. And that's why he said, pursue love. I mean, go after it. Run after it, Paul said. Don't ever be satisfied with where we are as far as our love for one another. And again, <clears throat> the portrait of love, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. The next principle be spiritual. Not only be loving, but be spiritual. He says, and be eager for the spiritual gifts. Now we talked about this the last couple of weeks. Actually, the word gift is not in the Greek New Testament. It's the Greek word pneumatikos, where he's talking about spiritual people, not the gifts. When he's talking about gifts, he will use the Greek word charismata. When he's talking about spiritual people, he uses the word pneumatikos. And the reason, again, he emphasizes that, as we've already talked about, (coughs) excuse me, my allergies are going to start kicking in here. Apologize. I'm going to need some water. The reason he uses the word pneumotikos is, again, he's reminding us that no matter what gifts we have, what abilities we have or whatever, the gifts, the abilities, the talents are only as good as the people who are using them. It's It's like a tool. 
And, and you put that tool in bad hands, then it's going to be bad. You put that tool in good hands, it's going to be good. And so it's not so much the gifts, the abilities, the talents. It's much, the more, the more important focus for all of us is to be governed and filled by the Spirit. If we are striving to be spiritual people, then whatever gifts, talents, and abilities God has given us, they will be used in a proper way. They will be used out of a proper motivation, all of that. So Paul here is basically saying to the Corinthians, every time we get together, make sure that all of you are being governed, led, Filled by the Spirit. Whatever's happening, make sure it is Spirit-led. Make sure your conversation is being guided by the Spirit. All of that. That's what Paul means. Sorry. This is my cough syrup for a couple seconds. So be loving. Be spiritual. The next one. Be beneficial. Be beneficial. He says in verse 2, or he says at the end of verse 1, especially that you may prophesy. Speak God's revelation is what the word prophesy means. For I, or for the one speaking in tongues, does not speak to people, but to God. Now, this is not a message on tongues. Tongues is a very divisive subject amongst Christians. It doesn't have to be. You study the book of Acts, you study what Paul says about tongues in 1 Corinthians, I think it's very clear what Paul says about tongues. And here he's making a very important point that a lot of times Christians don't understand, is that someone who's speaking in tongues really is not speaking to people but to God, for no one understands. He is speaking mysteries by the Spirit, literally a personal message between him and God, or her and God. Wow. Wow. I've been fine all day. Of course, I haven't talked all day either. Thank you. My personal nurse here. Thank you, Sally. All right. Notice, verse 3. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouragement, and consolation. That's where we start getting into the beneficial part of this. First of all, the word strengthening means to build up, to promote spiritual growth, to edify, another word. The word encouragement is the Greek word parakaleo, called alongside to help, comfort. It means to refresh somebody, to help somebody, to stir in a positive way, to sort of stir them or spur them to do what they should be doing, to give them courage, if you will. And the word consolation just means to calm and comfort. So when we come together and speak to each other, it should be to strengthen each other, to encourage each other, and to console one another. He goes on, the one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. I wish you all spoke in tongues. He's not anti-tongues. But even more that you would prophesy, the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. Now, this doesn't mean greater as far as of more value. The word greater here means powerfully affecting or benefiting others. In other words, he's just simply going on and saying what he's already said. When we come together and we speak God's revelation to each other, we truly can benefit each other. If I would speak in tongues and it's between me and God, then how is that benefiting other people around me. 
It benefits me, but it's not benefiting the body. It's not benefiting the church. And then he goes on to say, unless he interprets so that the church may be strengthened. Verse 5. So, be loving, pursue love. Be spiritual, be eager for the spiritual. To be filled and governed by the Holy Spirit and be beneficial. Seek to help. Notice, now I, brothers and sisters, verse 6. If I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I help you? The word help there means to assist, to be useful, to be beneficial. How will I help you unless I speak to you with a revelation or with knowledge or with prophecy or with teaching? Let me just define those four words. They're very interesting. The word revelation is the Greek word apocalypsis. It's the same word that's used for the last book of the Bible, the revelation of Jesus Christ. It means a uncovering. It means a disclosing. So Paul's saying sometimes when we get together, we can uncover things in God's revelation that we didn't see before and help others see something they haven't seen. We uncover it for them. Oh, I never saw that before. That's a good thing. That helps to benefit us. We also can speak knowledge to people. The word knowledge here means an enlarging. In other words, I may have seen it before, but now I see it in a greater light. Now I see it bigger. I know the Bible taught on this, but you have enlarged it. You put it under a microscope or you put it in front of a telescope. It's now bigger to me. And then the word prophecy means to inspire someone or motivate them. And then the word teaching simply means to instruct or explain something to one another. So Paul's saying, bottom line, we come together, be loving, be spiritual, be beneficial to each other. Benefit each other in some way. Especially because we're speaking God's revelation to each other. Next principle, beginning in verse 7. Be clear. Be clear. Don't be confusing. He says, it is similar... For lifeless things that make a sound. <clears throat> Excuse me. I know that's obnoxious to cough into a microphone. Like a flute or harp. Unless they make a distinction in the notes. A difference in the notes. How can what is played on the flute or harp be understood? In other words, Paul's saying, if somebody played a musical instrument and just played all the same note, that doesn't... But when they start to play different notes, then it makes a tune, and then it makes a melody, and then it makes a song, and then it can be understood. And so Paul's saying, but you've got to be clear whenever you do that. If, for example, verse 8, the trumpet makes an unclear sound, an uncertain sound, an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? Back in Bible times, they were called to battle by the trumpet. It is the same for you. If you do not speak clearly, distinctly with your tongue, how will anyone know what is being said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are probably many kinds of languages in the world. None is without meaning. If then I do not know the meaning of a language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker. And the speaker a foreigner to me. And others, we won't understand it. We won't be clear to each other. And so the whole point here is when we come together, let's be clear. I, I don't believe this is me. I, I, I believe that God has allowed me, given me this gift or ability to do this. But one of the highest compliments I get from folks whenever I teach the word is that I can understand that. Well, to me, that's the way it should be. If you go to church or you're taught the Bible by anybody 
if it's so over your head or if it's unclear and it causes you more confusion after you've been taught a passage of scripture than before, to me, then we're missing the mark, if you will. When we come together as God's people, God's clear. God, I think, is very clear. He, he's very straightforward and out there as to what he has revealed to us. And so why should we try to muddy the waters, if you will, of God's revelation? We need to be clear about what God has said to each other. He goes on to say in verse 12, it is the same with you. Since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, again, seek to abound in order to strengthen the church, to benefit the church, to build up, promote growth in the church. So be loving, be spiritual, be beneficial, be clear. Verse 13, be mindful, be mindful. And I think you'll see where I'm going when I read the passage. So then, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind, my ability to comprehend, my ability to understand is unproductive. If it's only my spirit, if my mind's not engaged. So notice verse 15, what should I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. I will sing praises with my spirit, but I will also sing praises with my mind. In other words, Paul is simply saying that in Corinth and other places, there were Christians who got caught up in such an ecstatic experience that their spirit was engaged, but their mind was not engaged. They didn't even know really what they were doing or saying or anything, and obviously no one else did either. And Paul's saying, that might be good for you, that might be good in the privacy of your own home, but there's no way the church is benefiting from that because no one else can comprehend or understand what is going on there. But when you and I engage the mind along with our spirit, and God certainly doesn't want us to shut off the spirit, but just like Jesus said, there's got to be a balance. Worship me, Jesus said to the woman in Samaria, those who worship me must worship me in spirit and in truth. And God wants us to engage the mind. God doesn't want us to shut off our mind when we worship him and when we come together. He wants us to think. Uh, love the Lord with all your mind, heart, soul, strength. So our mind is very much a part of our worship and our walk with God. And all Paul is saying is we always need to be, in a sense, mindful. Having our minds engaged in what is going on and not disengage our mind from anything else so that it just becomes some kind of ecstatic or emotional experience without my mind really being involved. For instance, one of the things that I think we strive to do here, I know this is Nicole's heart too, is even when we sing songs that we don't get caught up in just the melody or the tune, but that we listen and, and pay attention to the words. So, so that, that's where we can, in a sense, our spirit can be caught up in the music itself, but our mind is engaged on what we're saying and, 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 and all of that. That's where the balance is. And that's all Paul is saying here. He says in verse 16, Otherwise, if you are praising God with your spirit, how can someone without the gift say amen to your thanksgiving since he does not know what you're saying? For you are certainly giving thanks well, but the other person is not strengthened, not benefiting. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in the church, I, would, I want to speak five words with my mind. 
In other words, so that people can comprehend and understand what I'm saying, so that I can instruct others, so that I can teach others, rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. So again, Paul sort of, especially with the Corinthian church, where their emphasis was on tongues to, and the de-emphasis on prophecy, basically Paul comes in in 1 Corinthians 14 and said, that should be the other way around. Tongues is fine. Tongues have their place. But in the church, the emphasis should be on speaking God's revelation, not on speaking in tongues. Then the next one, verse 20. Be mature. The next principle, be mature. Brothers and sisters, do not be children, immature, infantile in your thinking. Instead, be infants in evil. The word evil means to cause trouble, to injure others. In other words, don't be good at causing trouble and injuring others. But if you want to be mature in something, be mature in your thinking. And I love the word mature here in verse 20. Very great word in the Greek language and very insightful as to what God thinks of when he thinks of being mature. The word means to go to the end or go to the finish. In other words, from God's perspective, a mature person is one who will let something go all the way out to the end and finish before they figure out whether it's good or bad or whether they should do it or not do it. In other words, for instance, before I take on something, I think a mature person would say, let me run this out. How's that going to look in five years? How's that going to look in 10 years? How's that going to look a thousand years from now when I'm in heaven before the Lord? How's that going to look a million years from now? Go to the end. Go to the finish. Don't get caught up in the here and now and make decisions based on expediency and and just getting caught up in the moment and feelings and all of that. But be mature. Go to the end and go to the finish line. And then begin to make decisions and choices and live your life out of that kind of perspective. A sort of a top-down perspective. A heavenly perspective. Is this something that I, I would want to have been engaged in when I'm up in heaven a thousand years? Go to the end. That's maturity. And Paul wants us all, oh goodness gracious, to be mature. I got it. It's good. It's one of those nights, you know. It's all right. We're going to go with the flow. So, verse 21, it is written in the law, by people with strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to the people, yet not even in this way will they listen to me, says the Lord. So then, next principle, be focused. Be focused. Oh good, I got 15 minutes. So then, tongues are a sign. Now, here's another principle that a lot of Christians don't, they've never seen this. Tongues are a sign not for the believers, but for unbelievers. A lot of Christians would say just the opposite. Tongues are for believers, right? Paul says, no. Tongues are a sign of God's supernatural enablement, if you will, to unbelievers. Even think about Acts chapter 2, how the people in Acts responded whenever the disciples, the followers of Christ began to speak in tongues and saw a supernatural manifestation of the Spirit of God. Notice, prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. <coughs> Excuse me. 
So, if the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and unbelievers or uninformed people enter, will they not say that you have lost your minds? Now, they may say that anyway around here. Okay. But Paul's point is well taken. By the way, I want to point this out as well. You will notice in this passage something I think is very important. You have, you have folks today who think that different churches sort of gear their church towards unbelievers rather than believers, and somehow that's just, that's just a preference. That's just a style difference. Well, I would beg to differ. I think it's unbiblical. Okay? I think biblically, and here's another passage that I think clearly teaches that, that when the church comes together, primarily our focus needs to be on believers, not on unbelievers. If an unbeliever happens incidentally to come into your church, is exactly what Paul's saying, then fine. But don't gear your service. Don't gear your church around unbelievers. When believers come together, when the church comes together, the implication from the Bible is it's predominantly to be Christians. Our evangelism as Christians isn't to be done in a church service. Our evangelism of unbelievers is to be done when we go out into the world and we share the gospel individually with our family, friends, co-workers, and then they get saved or else have an interest, and they come to the church. But we don't gear church to unbelievers. The Bible clearly says the church is to be geared and what happens in the church to believers. Now, here's though the cool thing. If the church is focused on God and on speaking God's revelation, even if an unbeliever comes in, notice what can happen. If all prophesy, verse 24, and an unbeliever or uninformed person enters... He will be convicted by all. He will be called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are going to begin to become disclosed. In other words, he's going to see himself and recognize himself for what he really is. And the fact that he doesn't have God in his life. And he will fall down, humble himself with his face to the ground and worship God. Literally to kneel before God surrendering, declaring... God is really among you. See, the church doesn't have to change in order to reach unbelievers. If the church focuses on God and on God's word, do we not think that God is powerful enough and God's word is powerful enough to reach into an unbeliever's heart and bring them to salvation? I do. I believe it. I've seen it happen. I think it's biblical. And so... Let's stay focused on what we are to focus on. If unbelievers come, God will use His Word and His Holy Spirit to reach into their hearts and save their soul if they want to be saved. We don't have to change a thing. We just have to remain focused. Then verse 26. Beginning in this verse, He's teaching us how to be cooperative with each other. Now I want to say this before we get to this passage, because this passage I think also causes a lot of confusion. We have to remember, principles in the Word of God are timeless. But the actual way some of these principles work themselves out in that culture compared to this culture can be totally different. In other words, let's remember something. When this church in Corinth was meeting, 
They just had the Old Testament scriptures. They did not have the completed Bible yet. Old and New Testament. That's one thing. Second, when this church was meeting, the church had not been established long enough to get pastors to pastor every church. And that's one of the things like you read in Titus and Timothy, where one of Paul's jobs was to train young men and then get them to a church that they could pastor. So at this time in history, church services looked much different than they do today. Because when the church came together, there wasn't just one pastor that was responsible to, in a sense, teach the word. And that's exactly what happened later on. That's why Paul told like Timothy and Titus, when you pastor this church, you're primarily responsible to preach and teach the word. But in Corinth, it was almost like what I would call like sort of the dynamic of a home Bible study where everybody that was part of that church sort of shared. You know, a couple of them spoke in tongues, a couple of them uh, preached. It wasn't just one guy getting up and doing it. They had multiple speakers. But let's face it, folks, these church services didn't last for an hour. They didn't. They lasted for hours. So they had much more going on. They had multiple music. They had multiple speakers. They had multiple everything because it wasn't like it is today, you see. So keep that in mind. I don't think Paul here is laying down a a way to do church now like it was back then because it's different. But the principle is the same. When we come together, let's cooperate with each other. Notice what Paul says. What should you do then, brothers and sisters? When you come together, again, each one has a song, has a lesson, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. There's a lot going on in that service, right? Let all these things be done for the strengthening of the church. Again, back to benefiting the church. If someone speaks in a tongue, it should be just two or at the most three, one after the other, and someone must interpret If there's no interpreter, he should be silent in the church. Let him speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak. And the others should evaluate what is said. Excuse me. (coughs) If someone sitting down receives a revelation, the person who is speaking should conclude. For you can all prophesy one after another so all can learn and be encouraged. Indeed, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. In other words, in those days, because there wasn't, in a sense, a pastor that was teaching, they had multiple prophets in the church that would speak. And yet, even there, those prophets had to yield to other prophets. In other words, other prophets in the church could challenge what that prophet said or say, oh, I disagree with that. I, I see it different over here. Let's look at what God's word says over here. So there was give and take in, in that. Again, more like a home Bible study than what we're used to as a church service. And then he goes on to say, verse 33, God is not characterized by disorder, by instability, by confusion, but by peace. And the word peace here means not only harmony, but cooperation. So Paul's saying, be cooperative. Now we come to one of the most... What word am I looking for? Scary. Scary. One of the most uh, 
fought over passages of Scripture as to the real meaning of it in all the Word of God. The whole women keeping silent in the church. And you probably thought Pastor Jeff was just going to gloss over that. No, I'm going to tackle it head on. Because I'll tell you what, I don't see the big deal myself. I realize I'm a man. Okay, I get it. But I think once you hear what I believe the passage is teaching, you're going to go, oh, well, that's not what I've ever heard. I've not heard that quite that angle before. <coughs> if I can stop coughing, I'll get it out. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should be silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. Rather, let them be in submission, as in fact the law says. If they want to find out something, they should ask their husbands at home, because it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. Wow. So, let's remember something. First of all, when you and I, as Christians, study the Word of God and try to come to a proper interpretation, we've got to take other Scripture into account, and we've got to take the context into account. Those two things are huge. So let's first go with other Scriptures. Just back a couple chapters in 1 Corinthians 11, when he was talking about head coverings, he already said, when your women prophesy or pray in the service. Well, oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute then. If Paul said it was okay for women to pray in service and to prophesy in services, then this can't mean that women can't pray or prophesy in a church service. Because that would contradict what he said back in 1 Corinthians 11. So it can't mean that. Then you come to the context. The context here, if you look at it, it was when prophets, multiple prophets are speaking in this church... And there's being, they're being challenged. Uh, they're being taken to task, if you will. Uh, someone is taking issue or voicing some kind of disagreement or displeasure with what they said. So I believe, again, when you take other scripture into account and you look at the context, all that Paul is saying here, for the sake of time and order is, that if a woman has an issue with something that a prophet has said in that church service, don't speak out in church. Let it be these other recognized prophets in the church who have that opportunity. But don't let the whole congregation, especially women, get into that. Women have all the right in the world to take issue with something that is said in that service. They have every right to disagree with something that was said. But all Paul is saying for the sake of time, because these services already run long and everyone wants to get their voice heard, is here's a proper channel for women to take to task and to take issue with and to disagree or voice their displeasure with something that was said in the service. And if they can't get any satisfaction there, then Paul will give them other avenues with which to... For instance, when he says to a woman there, well, go talk to your husband about it and go to that channel. Obviously, there were single women in the church, so they had other avenues to go to voice that. So all Paul, I think, is saying here is, first, not that women can't prophesy or pray in church. That would contradict what he said in 1 Corinthians 11. I think all he's saying here is that in this context, when we're talking about people speaking out during the service and saying, wait a minute, I got a problem with that. Leave that to a few of the recognized prophets in the church or else this is going to end up being chaos and it's going to go on forever. That's what I think he means by women 
being silent in the church. Whoa. Anyway, I, I hope that helps. Because can I tell you, I've heard a lot of different interpretations of that than that. So anyway. And all I think he's saying in verse 35 is it's dishonoring for a woman to speak out in church in that way. It's like, no, there's a proper way to do it. Again, women can disagree with what was being done. They can take issue with it, but there's a proper way to do it. Not in the church service. Okay. All right. Verse 36. Man, I got two more to go. Did the word of God begin with you or did it come to you alone. If anyone considers himself a prophet or a spiritual person, he should acknowledge that I write to you or what I write to you is the Lord's command. If someone does not recognize, recognize this, he is not literally to be recognized. In other words, don't give this person, if they don't submit to these principles, then don't give them a platform in the church. Because they're just going to stir up trouble. Because they're not being loving, they're not being spiritual, they're not being beneficial, they're not being clear, they're not being mindful, they're not being mature, they're not being focused, they're not being cooperative. And then finally, the last two, verses 39 and 40. So then, brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid anyone from speaking in tongues and do everything in a decent and orderly manner. Decent. Be attractive. That's what the word decent. Literally the word decent here in the, in the original Greek means to be elegant and graceful. Wow. And, and the, the implication of the term in the Greek language was to be so attractive, so elegant and graceful in what you did that it was influential. I couldn't help but think of the way modern advertisers do things. Obviously, anyone who tries to advertise a product tries to do so in such an attractive, elegant, graceful way, if you will, that it influences us to buy it. And Paul is simply saying the church should be a place that attracts people, not repels them. We should do things with such elegance and grace that we have an influence, an impact on others. And then the word orderly, the final principle, means really, literally, to be self-controlled or disciplined. Be self-controlled and disciplined when we come together. But I love this other meaning that is even more powerful than those two. When you study this word in the Greek language, Another meaning actually came to the forefront more than even being controlled or disciplined. Be prepared. You and I can't really be orderly in anything that we do if we haven't put preparation into it. And that speaks powerfully to me. For instance, I can't just come on, oh, I could, but... I shouldn't come on Tuesday and just go, I haven't put any study or anything into this. I'm just winging it. Can I tell you? There's not much order in my message to begin with when I do prepare. So can you imagine the lack of order? You know, what if Nicole didn't put any forethought into the songs? What if the team never got together and went over them? You know, that's why 
in any of our Bible studies, any of our small groups, even in our children's ministry, we encourage all our people, if you step up to do something, make sure that you have the time to put in some preparation because it's out of our preparation comes order. In fact, this even goes so far as to, I think what God is saying is that we as Christians should keep up a a mindset of preparation even when it comes to coming together. And I've tried to challenge myself this with this for years. I will get more out of refuel Bible study on Tuesday if I prepare for Bible study Wednesday through Monday. And that I come on Tuesday out of the overflow of my preparation for this meeting every Tuesday night. Same thing on Sunday. I will get more out of Sunday morning service if I have prepared my heart and mind Monday through Saturday, so that when I come Sunday, it's not like I'm just sort of trying to flip on a switch and kick it into high gear all of a sudden, even though I haven't walked with Christ and really been in God's presence and been in his word all week. Somehow I'm going to come on Sunday and just sort of try to, it doesn't work. I'm not going to get near as much out of that service as if I had prepared myself for it days ahead of time. Preparation. In fact, this Sunday gives us a great opportunity Because this Sunday at the Oasis is Communion Sunday, a time where we should be preparing anyway for the service to come. So I want to leave us with this challenge tonight. For the next four days, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, would all of us at least who are here tonight, obviously if you're not here, unless you hear this out in cyberspace, would we take the next four days and ask God to prepare us for Sunday service? And maybe you've never even thought about it that way. But I'd like to throw out that challenge for this reason. Take that challenge on and see if it doesn't make a difference when you come to church on Sunday of what you get out of the service Sunday because of what you've put in the rest of the week. Be prepared. God wants to see a people who are preparing themselves for what he's going to do in their lives, individually and corporately. And so we have to, in a sense, take the time to be prepared. So, ten principles that guide our gathering together. Let me just go over them quickly and I'll close in prayer. So you make sure you got them all if you were taking notes. Be loving, be spiritual, be beneficial, be clear, Be mindful, be mature, be focused, be cooperative, be attractive, be prepared. Those are the 10 principles that should guide our coming together so that when we do come together, God is truly glorified and we get the most out of our coming together as God's people. Let's pray. God, thank you for these reminders tonight. I pray, God, that we would allow these to just sort of flow around in our hearts and minds and and sink into our being. May these things, Lord, be something that's always on the forefront of our mind when we come together. That, That truly, Lord, our focus should be on benefiting one another, strengthening one another, encouraging one another when we come together. And this passage just reminds us about how foreign 
the consumeristic spectator uh, response of a lot of people today with their local church is foreign to the Bible and to God. That God expects his people who call themselves his people to not be spectators, but to be participants. And to not be consumers who are just looking to their local body for what they can get out of it, but they're looking to be able to give something to the body of Christ, to benefit others in some way. And so, God, I pray tonight that once again, this passage just maybe taught us something, maybe uncovered something, maybe reinforced something, reminded us of something, Lord, that will be so helpful to us in our walk with you. And God, may we take on this challenge and allow these next four days until we come back and meet again to be a time of preparation so that we don't just get up on Sunday morning and say, okay, I'm going to church and let's see what happens. But we've truly taken the time over these next few days to prepare ourselves to get much more out of it than just trying to come and get it all of a sudden. God, I think we'll see a difference. So God, go with us this week. Give us a great week. We know there's a lot of sickness going around and all of that. So God, I just pray for healing for those who are not feeling well. And just be with all of us, Lord. Watch over us. Help us, Lord, to use these next four days, as I said, not only for preparation, but even as an opportunity to minister. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, thanks for being here. Have a great week.